You are listening to the Gable Media Continuing Education Podcast Feed, the most entertaining and convenient way for AEC professionals to get continuing education credits, including AIA-approved courses. As a Gable member, just listen and follow the link in the show notes to take a brief quiz and obtain your credit today. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello and welcome back. So in this episode, I was able to sit down with Bill Baker, who is a consulting partner at SOM in Chicago, Illinois, and he is actually one of the world's leading structural engineers. So needless to say, I was starstruck. Bill is designed innovative structures that range in scale from single family homes and small pedestrian bridges to the world's tallest man-made structure, the Burg Khalifa, which is located in Dubai. This was so much fun and such a treat to sit down with Bill and kind of dig into his brain. He has traveled all over the world and been responsible for structural designs all around the world. Many, many showpiece projects he has worked with, world-renowned architects and artists in the work that he has done. He's also received honorate doctorates from the University of Stuttgart, Herat Watt University, the Illinois Institute of Technology, and the University of Missouri. He has been honored with the gold medal from the Institution of Structural Engineers, the American Society of Civil Engineers Opal Lifetime Award for Design, the Gustav Magnell Gold Medal from the University of Ghent, the Falzer Rahman Khan Medal from the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat, and the Fritz Leonard Prize. So he is a very, I've never used this in the sense of structural engineering, but he is a very decorated structural engineer with a great legacy thus far that is amazing and so much fun to talk to him. So we actually talked about the Broadgate Exchange House, which is located in London. And this structure is a building bridge hybrid. So it is constructed over the Liverpool Street Station and actually has to clear span like 250 feet and has a 10-story building on top of this. So it's mostly constructed out of steel. The bridge is formed or supported off of four arches, four parallel arches that span this 250 feet distance. It was actually a very interesting building to talk about. It is novel. It is unique, which is pretty much a trademark of Bill's designs. He is innovative and always thinking about what can be done more efficiently, what can be done more creatively. And it was so fascinating to talk to him and just about those beginning stages of each project and how the structural engineer and the architect contractor, all people involved is best if they are able to sit at that table at the start of a project to kind of walk through these things. So I feel like my mind is still blown from the interview and I think yours will be too. So if you're maybe not familiar with the structural engineering world or if you're an architect or a structural engineer, I think all of you will find this interview very valuable and very inspiring and we'll leave you with lots of nuggets of information and expertise. So enjoy. 
Bill, thank you so much for being here today. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me, and I'm, I'm very pleased to talk about this project. I'm very proud of that project, so it's kind of nice to be, be asked to talk about. Oh, I feel like it's a very novel project. Like I've never seen anything like it. So for the listeners, and we'll get into the detail of it a little bit more too, but it's like this 10-story office building that is constructed over Liverpool's train station. So it's a bridge building hybrid situation that is very complicated, but looks very streamlined and unique. So Bill, when were you guys contacted about this project or when were you brought in to consult? Well, we were working for a very enlightened developer, Sir Stuart Lipton in London. And in the 19th century, when the trains came into the cities like such as London, they would take out a swath of the city. So you, so the city was kind of interrupted by the train lines and particularly by the train station. So this was like an open wound in the city. And this is actually at the edge, the old Roman one square mile of London. So this is you know the ancient part of London at the, at the edge, right near the financial district. And the developer had this vision to build over where the tracks were and the trains were in order to bring the city together and create, you know, real estate opportunities and the like. And so we actually called this project Phase 11, okay, because the project had had 14 phases, okay. And so it was a very, very large project. Another firm did the first four phases. We did the following 10 phases. And a phase might be a plaza or a building or something like that. So this was, a, this was Phase 11. And this was built over the part of the tracks coming out of Liverpool Street Station. Now, Liverpool Street Station is not as well known to like tourists as say a, a Waterloo station, but you know it's the it's the main uh, train station that takes you up to like Cambridge and you know that part of England from London. It's a very 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 busy train station, and it, within the station itself, the tracks are pretty organized, you know, and so it's easy it would be easy to bring down a regular structure. But as, as it comes out of the station, the, the, the tracks all start to merge and, and get together. And they do that under the site where this building ended up being built. And so, you know, what do you do with this part which appears to be unbuildable? Okay. And so the architect, now I have to say, I was not involved in the very early part of the other phases. Okay. When this part of the project became the front and center, I was, I was brought in on the project. And at that point, the architects had been able to find these two places where we could bring down some substantial foundations, which were about 78 meters apart, which is around over 200 feet. It's a little bit bigger than the base of the Sears Tower, the Willis Tower, if you will, is the distance. And so there were these two, two places where we could bring down foundations. And, and when I got involved, the architects were were sketching something that looked like a hanging structure, somewhat like the Federal Reserve Bank that used to be up in Minneapolis. But it was clear to me that that wasn't very efficient. And, and one of the things I urge young engineers when they work with architects, when the architects give you a sketch, do not engineer it, okay? Take that sketch as a question. I need a building. I need a roof. Whatever the sketch is trying to do, do not engineer it. So I was able to convince everyone that this was not the most efficient load path, but ours should be much more efficient. And the reason for that, if you have a hanging structure, say at the middle of the building, the load goes to the down to the hanger, then up the hanger, then down the, the column to the support. And that's like three trips. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where if you have an arch, your longest trip is in the middle where it goes up to the arch and then down to the support. And so it was substantially more efficient than the, the earlier proposal. And so, you know, that's what I got involved in. And I happen to have been working prior to that with a bunch of architecture students down at IIT, and I was like the structural advisors for their master's thesis. 
And we, we were doing a series of studies on tall buildings. And I don't know if you realize this, but the uh, diagonally braced Hancock building in Chicago is actually a tight arch. Okay. Really? Yeah. It looks like a series of axes, but if you look at it, there's a bunch of embedded moment diagrams. A moment diagram is a natural load path of a structure. There's a triangle. So you can imagine the, a column on the top of the triangle could be carried to any of the other columns that are adjacent to it. Mm -hmm. Can I pause you for just a second, Bill? So a moment diagram for our listeners that aren't familiar with that. So that's part of our design. A moment diagram is where the moment, the bending moment is the worst case at the center, which by definition creates an arch, which I think is what you're referring to, right? So the Hancock building has all of these arches that are reflective of the moment diagram, correct? Yeah. And, and the arches, that could be a triangle, like a little A-frame. Or they could be little trapezoids where you have a horizontal, then a slope, and then it, then it closes. And so th these trapezoids. On the Hancock, you're able to move the loads, gravity loads, around wherever you want, basically. And so the, the Hancock was designed as a framed tube so that all the columns are kind of uniformly loaded by the gravity. And, and this bracing arrangement allows that to happen. In our case, we're trying to carry all the load to the edge. So I was thinking a lot about arches at the time this project was coming coming together. I proposed that and I was able to convince people that it was the right thing to do. Well, and they must have really trusted you, though, too, because it sounds like this was, you know, they were kind of taking a stab at what a solution would be, right? And then they brought it to you. They trusted you with your expertise as well to come up with something that was the most efficient for the situation and have that kind of marry with the architecture, correct? Yeah, but also, you know, my firm is architects and engineers in one company, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. Skidmore was an architect, Owings was an architect, Merrill was an engineer, okay? So you, you work with these people on many, many projects. You know, and Bruce Graham, who is the architect for the Hancock and the Sears Tower, was the chief architect. And I was working for Hal Angar, who had worked on those projects also. He was the structural partner at the time. But when you work with someone so much, you learn a lot, okay? So <laughs> the engineers learn a lot about architecture, and the architects learn a lot about engineering. And so there, it's more than trust. It's also understanding, you know? They understand what you're, you're doing, what you're describing, and why that's true. And then, and then the logic itself, which is most clear to an engineer, is also reasonably clear to the architects. Very interesting. And I think, like, as you're speaking, it's bringing up the thought in my head, too, of like how important it is for both the architect and the engineer to be involved early on in the project. Because just like you said, you know, the engineer, you don't want to go and design something based off of a preliminary sketch, an idea, a brainstorming session. But that goes the other way as well. Like, you know, the architects, we don't want them going down such a long path that maybe could be something more efficient or something more economical from a structural perspective. So it just... Like, I think it's important for both parties to be involved early on. Yeah, absolutely. And what we try to do is when a new project comes to the office, we try to maybe some junior architect will say, here's the site and, you know, here's the zoning permissions. Here's the mass transit, rocks, minis. But then we try to get everybody in the room at the same time, not just architects and engineers, but uh, interior designers, urban planners, sustainability engineers, everybody in the room at the same time. So, Because actually, there's a danger of falling in love with a bad idea, okay? Mm -hmm. Somebody draws it up early and, and they just stick with it. But, you know, the, the whole thing about having the right structure, which is the right geometry, and the geometry is the architecture. We, we speak of... We actually have a little vocabulary. We have design domain. Where could something exist? Okay, call that the design domain. 
And then we have the topology, okay? Where are the beams and the columns and the diagonals, or, or, you know, or shall we say, what is connected to what? And then the next, so topology, the next is shape. Now, how do you take that connectivity and move the nodes around so you have an efficient structure? And then finally, sizing, which is, you know, how big is the column of the connection or the diagonal or the hanger, whatever it is, how, what's the physical size of that element? The first two, topology and shape, that's architecture, okay? And so it's very important that structural engineers have special knowledge. So that special knowledge needs to be available at the very beginning of the design team, particularly today with the climate crisis. One of the most important aspects of construction right now is embodied carbon. Mm -hmm. How much carbon is used to build a new building? And quite frankly, we need to build them because there's population growth. We just passed 8 billion people in the world. Well, guess what? Everyone needs a place to live and work. And so you, there's a need for building, but it needs to be very efficient. And the carbon you spend the day is structure. So you need to have a very, very efficient structure. So you use the least amount of embodied carbon and you're not going to get there unless you have that structural engineer in the room with you on day one. I think that gives us, as structural engineers, that gives us so much autonomy. Like, I feel like, and an opportunity to be proactive. In the past, we have just kind of, like, resorted to being reactive. Whatever the architecture is, will respond to it with structure. But in this case, like, in something that's so important and making sure that we're protecting our environment we can be proactive and be involved. Before the climate crisis was really recognized, if somebody wanted to do an incredibly inefficient building, you'd say, well, it's their business. If the client wants to write that big a check, go for it. But now it's, it's a society issue. It affects all of us. And so it's actually, it behooves us all to be very efficient. And actually it saves money usually. Mm-hmm. You know, a more efficient structure costs less than a, an efficient structure. And structure is a, a big cost of any new construction. So, yeah, it's, it's it's a different world. Now, fortunately, you know, I grew up at SOM where the architects and engineers are always involved from the beginning. But but you're right. In many, many cases, the engineers brought in late in the game, and their job is to make it not fall over, which is kind of a unfortunate way to put it. You know, I mean, as opposed to creating something that's natural, that works organically for both the structure and the architecture from the very beginning, is much better than an architect who doesn't know as much as they you might wish they knew about structure, comes up with some idea, and then the engineer comes in and just sizes it, okay, and is not involved in those first two things, topology and shape, which is really the defining thing. Because it is through geometry that structure and architecture comes together. And structure is usually a lot of times used to define the spaces and to create the architecture. So I have a question for you then, like the beginning phases of a project with the topology and geometry and shape, is there like a play period or like a brainstorming period? You've worked on very complex buildings. You have experience with this. You know inherently what geometry is going to work the best. But is there like for a beginning engineer or for an architect that's just learning about, you know, efficient systems, is there like a brainstorming phase where you're actually kind of testing out these different geometries? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We try to get everybody together in the same room uh, at the very beginning, and there'd be like ideas flying all over the place. When you come out there, maybe you have five schemes, okay? And then you get back together, you compare the five schemes. Well, this has a good aspect. This part didn't quite work. We'll do this. 
And then you maybe go down to three schemes. And that, those three schemes aren't necessarily one of the five. They may be a merger of some of the ones you had initially. And so you have these multiple schemes that get reduced down. But actually, even the schemes you do not build on that project may have ideas that live beyond the project. And so, you know, you'll have a good idea. It's not right for this project, but it's maybe right for one in the future. And so you have a lot of opportunity to create ideas. And these these ideas can live way beyond any uh, one uh, one project. But it, but it is very important to have a free flow of ideas at the very, very beginning. And there's not like the right answer. And one of the things engineers are taught, I understand why it happens, is that, you know, that there's one right answer, okay? Like uh, we hire people from the best universities around the world. They're all top students. They're used to getting the one right answer, okay? <laughs> then they come here and guess what? There's no one right answer. There, there's a series of ideas and it's all about compromise and stuff like that. Because what may be the best structure may not be the best layout for the users, okay? And so, you know, the interior designers are a very important part of the process. And so, you know, like when we did the Burj Khalifa, you know, it was the architects, engineers, urban designers, and client in the room that really kind of set up the modularity of how the building laid out so that it worked for the users of the building for that particular market. That's awesome. So with the Broadgate, that first initial, you know, coming up with different ideas with the geometry, what were your initial thoughts with that? So for the audience, if you have a uniform load, like this building, the weight is fairly uniformly distributed and it's supported on the edge. There's a series of columns. There's 13 bays. And so you have these columns. The columns bring on the load. And so if you look at the natural shape of that, it's basically a parabola. All right. And so if you look at the arch, it's a parabola. But unlike a masonry arch where the, the bricks are all keep going, and so the, the arch keeps changing constantly, okay, the, the slope keeps changing constantly. Here, the load comes in, it's carried by the floor framing to the columns, and the columns or the hangers deliver it to the arch. And when that happens, the load goes into the arch, and then the, the shape of the arch changes. It, it gets a little bit steeper as it goes towards the support. So every time it picks up a little bit of a load, the slope changes. And if you look closely at the pictures, I assume there will be pictures associated with this. Yep. And you look closely, at first glance, it looks like the arch is curved. But you look more closely, it's a series of short, straight segments. And and one can imagine that this is not unlike a hanging chain, okay? There was a the very famous architect, engineer, scientist, Robert Hooke, wrote this anagram, okay, in Latin, okay? But basically what he says... As hangs the flexible chain, so inverted stands the rigid arch. <laughs> now, the way you did a proof back then, so you could have, uh, you could say, this is my idea. You would write it in Latin. Then you would take all the letters, like all the A's and B's, and you put them in order, and you have all these letters, and then you publish them, okay? <laughs> and, and then so, if someone can unscramble those letters, they can get your proof okay this sounds so weird it's true okay look it up and so uh robert hood had this anagram that if you unscrambled it and, and translated it from latin into english you get, get what i just said it's like escape rooms back in the day or something <laughs> you have to crack the code <laughs> crack the code because so you can imagine if i if i had a chain i put a series of loads on it it goes a straight line between the loads and then to the next right and so you invert that and that's how you get the shape of this arch that you see there. Now, the next question is, how high should the arch be? And so we did a whole series of studies about, it, should it be this many stories tall or this many stories or this many stories? We calculated all the beams and columns and diagonals and 
whatever, and hangers, added them up, and we tried another height. Since then, in fact, I don't know, about 12 years ago, I learned about this theorem, this energy theorem by James Clark Maxwell, who was one of the three most famous physicists. You got Einstein, Maxwell, and Newton as, you know, like the big three. Anyway, so uh, he, he did a lot of work in structural engineering in the 1860s, and he had this energy theorem. So it turns out nowadays I could do it in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it took us weeks to do it before, but you know, basically what you do is you you have your compression members, which are the arch, those are in compression, or the columns above, those are in compression. Then you have the hangers below and the tie. And so all you have to do, if you minimize the material in the tie and the hangers, you will automatically minimize the material in the arch without actually calculating it. It's a very, very powerful idea that now I know that I didn't know then. So, But basically, we, we came up with an optimal height for the arch. Okay. And that ended up being 10 stories? No, well, the, the arch itself is seven stories. The building is 10 stories, but the arch itself is seven stories. And the other thing is, like, if you look at the John Hancock in Chicago, the rule of the Hancock is every time a column passes a diagonal, it happens at a floor line. I was talking about earlier about these moment diagrams that are how the Hancock is a tight arch. That's one of the rules. So what we try to do is we, we try to get the arch to pass a column where there is a floor base. I see that. I'm looking at the picture. And it didn't happen at every bay, but it happened at, at, at a lot of them. And the, the shape that you ha- you see there is the best shape for a uniform load. What if the load's not uniform? Okay. There's two ways to have non-uniform loads. You could have non-uniform load that is symmetrical. So you've got a big load on both sides. Those loads would go down to the column. They would, like, push on the arch. But the floor beams, because those nodes are at the floor beam, it holds the shape of the arch. So the arch is happy. The other way you can have a non-uniform load, let's say you have a big load downward on one side, and this sounds a little silly, but an equal load going upward on the other side, anti-symmetrical load case. And if you look at the building, you'll notice there's the big arch, but there's a little tiny diagonal, a little V in the middle. And that is there for that load case. So once we can tunnel those two kinds of on the non-uniform loads, the ones that are symmetrically non-uniform, they're both going down, or the one that we call anti-symmetrical non-uniform, where one goes down, one goes up. Once you can handle both of those load cases, you can handle any load case. And so between those two rules, as many of the nodes as possible happen to the floor lines, and that V in the middle, we're able to handle not only the uniform loads very effectively, but any non-uniform load also. Okay, so you kind of describe the gravity system of this. So we've got four steel arches because you have to span, I think you said 70 some meters, which is, you say, 220 feet about is the clear span of the building? Yeah, a little bit more than that, yeah. Okay, so that is an amazing feat. Like you said, it's the size of the or the footprint of the Sears Tower. So this is a very large span that you have to go over and you've got these four steel arches that are parallel to each other and then vertical columns and horizontal beams. So what did you do for the lateral system of this building? Yeah, the span is the order of 256 feet, which is, you know, almost a city block of Chicago. Not quite. It's more than a city block of New York City because <laughs> uh, a New York City block in the narrow direction, they, they go about, it's 200 feet from of sidewalk, the property line to property line. So this is 56 feet more than that. It would actually go a whole block and then across the, the next street. Oh my gosh. In New York. And you mentioned there's four arches, okay, which is important. So there's two that you see, the one on the front face and one on the back face. 
but there are two that go through the middle of the building. And I tell you, the architects love that, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, how often do you get a chance to show up an arch in the middle of your building, okay? So there's an atrium that kind of follows the arch, the two inside arches up, because it's three base wide. There's roughly um, 18 meter, 60 foot span on each side, and then the middle spans around 50 foot, 15 meters. And so there's an atrium in the in the middle that follows up. Now for wind load, we're trying to show how the buildings work because the structure is the architecture in this case. If you look at the front of the building, the arch itself and that V help, they take care of the wind load pretty easily. And just on the two inner arches, there's some moment frames or, or columns that are connected to beams that help resist wind load. When the wind blows towards the arch in the other direction, if you look on the sides of the buildings, and, th and these you kind of have to sneak around to look, there's uh, exposed X bracing like the Hancock. Okay. There's X bracing between the in the center bay. If you go around to go to the sides, you look, look in, you'll see the X bracing that goes up that braces it in the other direction. Okay. How do you bring that down to the foundation then? Well, it all sits down on the, those giant piers, which were 78 meters apart, concrete piers, and so and it sits on essentially eight bearings. There's four feet, if you will, on each side, okay? The bracing comes down and sits on the two inner ones, okay? Each of the arches comes down and sits on these bearings. There's two bearings for each arch. There's four arches, so you have eight bearings. And we use natural rubber bearings because, you know, the structure is exposed, so if there's a temperature change, the building grows or shrinks and stuff like that, or there's a lot of people in there the tie stretches and moves a little bit. So it has to be able to move. And so rather than using something that slips, after some, a lot of discussions with experts, we ended up doing, they're about 10 inches thick, about 250 millimeters, a series of one inch thick natural rubber, then a stainless steel plate, and you got this, these sandwiches. And these things can shear. When we say shear, we mean from going from like square to like a little rhomboid, you know, with very little resistance and very, very efficient. So these bearings are very good for supporting what's essentially a bridge it's a building but really a bridge it's really both it's a <laughs> it's a bridge that holds up a building well that's a very interesting point though too because you know the fact like you can't have these super rigid connections in something that needs to have a little bit of degree of freedom a little bit of movement available so that's very innovative that you have the rubber bearing to allow for a little bit of movement there right yeah, and particularly when you come to like thermal loads, you cannot fight thermal. And, you know, I live in Chicago, okay? In the summertime, it gets hot and the highways buckle, okay? Because they're expanding, okay? They get hot. Joints aren't big enough. They have nowhere to go. Every bridge you go across, across the Chicago River, they have movement joints because when it gets hot, everything grows. When everything gets cold, everything shrinks. And you cannot fight that. I mean, if you try to restrain it, the forces can get huge. And so what you do is you try to let it breathe. And that's what we try to do. We try to let the building just move as it wants to move. Very fascinating. So you kind of alluded to this, but you said, you know, we've got a bridge and a building here. So a hybrid structure. What code do you use for that? Because there is a different design code, Ashto, for bridges and IBC for buildings. So when you marry the two together, where do you go for design? Well, a lot of our buildings, because, you know, we do some of the world's tallest buildings, including the world's tallest building, you're usually not exactly within the code, okay? Because it's the code wasn't written for that, okay? It's not that you're not satisfying the code. The code just doesn't address what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we generally work with first principles. You know, we go back to basic physics and knowledge and come up with the solutions. 
And then we work very closely with the building officials in the jurisdiction. In London, they're called the district surveyor. They're the they're people who give you permission to build. We meet with them early. Always, you want to bring them along. You want to explain what you're trying to do. You want to see if they have questions that you they want you to do extra studies on when we do those. And so you bring them along and you kind of cherry pick the best knowledge. It may not be in this building code, maybe in a, like say in a bridge code. Everyone's fine with that as long as you, you know, they understand why you're doing it. And because, you know, the building code doesn't have this. Okay. <laughs> what am I gonna, you know, it doesn't mean I don't do it, uh, you know. And, uh, and so it's important when you're doing, well, any building really, you should always be satisfied that you're actually you're satisfying its physics and first principles, regardless of what the building code says. You got to be sure that, that you're good. And then normally the building code is in alignment with that. But if there's not, you got to say the building code doesn't address what you have to deal with. Well, you still got to deal with it. Right. Yeah. You can't just ignore gravity <laughs> and physics. <laughs> yeah. Don't ignore physics. Okay. That's... <laughs> uh, words of wisdom. <laughs> okay. So I have a question on this. I'm just thinking about, so this is a Liverpool station. It's a very busy train station. The easiest way to construct this would be to have temporary shoring across that 156 foot length and build a structure. But my guess is, is that you were not able to shut this train station down. So what did you have to deal with as far as maintaining access and, you know, it just building this? Like, what were the challenges with that? At the time, the rail authority was called British Rail. And so under the building, we were able to build a plaza with, with relatively small columns. There were little windows where you could put a column down between the tracks. And you put like crash barriers around the columns and stuff like that to protect the columns. Anyway, and so we were able to build a plaza that had limited capacity, okay? It was enough to hold up itself. And so what we did during the construction is that we shored off of that, but we only put up the steel work and the metal deck. We didn't put any of the concrete slabs in there. We tried to keep the loads as small as we could during the construction. And then we were working with a very brilliant construction engineer, a guy named Steve Harris from 20G and Partners. And he was nervous about dropping the shores one at a time because the loads might jump around a little bit in the remaining shores. <laughs> and so his idea, and we, we engineered this into it, we actually put what's called flat jacks. These are like little pancakes like you take two pancakes and, and you glue them together. Those are steel pancakes, okay? <laughs> if you jack some hydraulic pressure, in the, the, they'll expand, okay? But they don't have much stroke, but really high capacity. And so we put a series of those under each of the eight bearings, and we picked up the entire building two inches. Okay, with the pancakes. The, the arch was closed. We put these flat jacks under the eight bearings. We jacked them up. The entire building went up two inches, which gently unloaded all the shores. The shores were then removed and the building was put back down two inches. Oh my gosh. That's very fascinating. So I hope he uh, has some <laughs> trademark on that situation. <laughs> Erection engineering is a, you have to be very creative if you're, you're trying to figure out how to build something. And so some of the most creative engineering out there is actually done by erection engineers. Yeah. And like it gets load tested immediately, right? Like that's very fascinating to me. I feel like I'm always so fascinated by a great contractor. <laughs> Yeah, you might say in some ways we weighed the building. <laughs> <laughs> you knew. You knew what that weight was going to be. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So the plaza level, is that something that was there or is that something that was constructed as part of the superstructure? The plaza was done first because you needed a staging area to, to work okay. from. As far as access, you know, we could get access to do construction in the tracks during the middle of the night. 
and on holiday weekends, so if you had to do something big, you'd do it over a holiday weekend where there weren't so many trains running. Because, you know, that's when the, the railroads do all their, their own maintenance, you know. There'll be times where they'll shut down a track to do their own maintenance. And so we would work with the railroads, the contractor would work with the railroads to come up with a windows of opportunity, generally in the middle of the night, to do construction down there. We did another building just to the north of there 10 years later, and, and we put in the, the, the main girder during the Millennium Weekend. It happens once every thousand years, okay? <laughs> <laughs> there was this big girder. It was the Millennium, literally, you know, from 1999, the year 2000. No trains were running, okay? And so uh, we had a bunch of contractors dropping this big girder over the, the tracks. This was like another block to the north on a, on a lighter building. I hope that was a celebration in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty <laughs> Yeah, like I say, once a thousand years. <laughs> right. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. So I guess one thing that, I mean, there's several other things I want to dig in with you, but in the interest of time, so you have a very decorated career thus far. You've been a part of very showpiece projects, the tallest building in the world, very innovative concepts. What would be some advice that you would give or a piece of advice to someone just starting out in structural engineering? There's a series of things, and I, you know, I actually wrote an article once on the education of a structural designer. Okay, you need to understand the basics. Okay, you're talking about building codes earlier. I like to say a building code is is a lifespan of a banana. Okay, <laughs> you know, I've gone through so many building codes through my lifetime in different parts of the world. The Chinese building code is not the American building code. You know, the European one's not the American building code. But the physics doesn't change. Okay, and the materials doesn't change. So understanding the basics of the physics behind what it is we do as engineers is essential. Having a deep technical understanding is very, very important. The other thing is knowing the history of your, of your profession. Unfortunately, structural engineers are not well-educated about the history of structural engineering. It is, it's important to know what's, what's been done before and understand the, not just the projects, but what's the idea behind the project. You know, if I said to you, this is like a Sukhov. Okay, who's what's Sukhov? Well, Vladimir Sukhov, a very brilliant Russian structural engineer from 100 years ago. He did these brilliant structures. And if you don't know about them, how can you understand those, those incredibly smart ideas that he had? Be able to draw by hand. I carry around a, a lead holder, not a pencil, but a lead holder so that you can use for sketching. Because if you want to communicate and you're in a meeting, you don't run to your computer and say, I, I'll be back in 20 minutes with a, with a computer plot. No. You sit there at the table and you draw on a piece of paper. And so you got to be, be able to draw. Since you can understand art history, the head of our London office he had a dual undergraduate degrees, one in physics, the other in art history, which we said, well, that's kind of structural engineering, right? It's uh, physics and art history. It's bringing these things together. And so... Travel is important. Go around and try to see these buildings and these bridges and, and whatever. And then you can take you can look at it. You can even take a picture. But if you can have time to draw it, because the advantage of drawing is that it makes you really look because it really slows you down. How does that joint come together? How does that meet the ground? And if you if you can travel and draw, you'll get a much, much deeper understanding of what that design team did on that project. That's very fascinating. And I love how you said, you know, someone that has, you know, just the art side of it, because I think a lot of times, like art and physics together, like a lot of times structural engineers are thought of as not being artistic and just being logical and only using one side of the brain. But 
like you said, like it's very important for us to, I'm thinking of you in those starting meetings where you're coming up with brainstorming five different geometries. Geometry is art. So, you know, like that's so important to have that artistic side too. And like you said, I mean, you also alluded and said this as well with, you know, being able to sketch things out. So I find that so fascinating and reinforces what we know as design professionals that we do need to have that artistic side. But sometimes I think that gets missed in the general population. And don't feel bad if you're a bad artist. Just you still have to draw. Okay. I'm a <laughs> terrible artist. My stuff is not beautiful. It's ugly. Okay. But I can get my, I can get my ideas across. Okay. Or I can understand something if I sit there and I draw it. I do it for myself. You know, I do it so I understand. Uh-huh. But, you know, don't worry about if, if, if being a beautiful artist. No, no, no. But I do think most structural engineers and most architects are tend to be visual people. Mm-hmm. They understand things not only, and engineers not only mathematically, but visually, you know. And so I, it's it's important to think about in multiple ways. Like I try to do most of my engineering I do a lot of mathematics. I do a lot of calculus. I do it all the time, the linear algebra. But I also look at things a lot yeah. and try to understand visually, how is this thing working? You know, How is this happening? Not just the equations. Well, and I think the equations with looking at it and having that kind of intuition, like that marries them together then. So like you're probably doing like a little calculus when you're just looking at things too, because you have that background. They mutually in, in, reinforce each other. Yeah, you, you kind of see what, uh, then you look at the equations, you get some ideas of what the variables. The other thing is when I was a, a junior engineer, a lot of times when juniors, you're doing what your boss tells you to do, okay? A buddy of mine, whenever a new project came into the office, we would kind of guess what the structural solution was going to be before the, the big guys did, before the bosses did. And and sometimes you say, well, oh, well they had a better idea, or sometimes oh, I think he had a better idea, <laughs> you know. And so you start to develop. And one of the things about being an engineer, creativity increases over time. I love that because you know more. Mm-hmm. The more projects you do, the more things you think about, the bigger your toolkit is. The more ideas you have that you can bring to the next project. And so yeah, engineers get much more creative as they get more exposed. And maybe a little more confidence to fly a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It's always important to work with other engineers. You got to have somebody you can talk to where you can think about your ideas and and don't be afraid of a bad idea because you can learn a lot from a bad idea, not just a good idea. And a lot of times when I have a a junior engineer work with me, I say, bring me like three ideas. Be sure one of them is a bad idea, but don't tell me which one. Okay. (laughs) First of all, it takes some of the pressure off, but you know, but sometimes you'll do something like, well, why is it a bad idea? In the process of understanding why it's a bad idea, you understand something, but maybe you didn't think about it all at the beginning. Love it. Love it. Okay. So if you could give the Broadgate a theme song, what would it be? Oh. <laughs> oh. Maybe it's a Honda, like the fireworks, or music for royal fireworks. Okay. Music right. for royal fireworks. We'll, Love we'll it. Go with that. We'll go with that. Yeah, and it's in London. Like yes, the <laughs> Yes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> so Phil, what do you do to recharge? I do research. Okay, I work on projects, then I, I think about blue sky things. Okay. I think a lot about things that have no that relate to the business but have no known practical application. Just something I'm curious about. And then eventually I'll figure out what to do with it. But I start out with just blue sky i find it very rewarding because the projects are good you know and you you do the project but you also have to like do blue sky if you're really going to create something if you can do something new that's never been done before it's not going to 
it's more likely to happen if you're doing research on the side. So that's that's one of the ways I recharge. The other things I like to do, I like to go bike riding. I like to do sailing in small boats, like a laser or a, a 420. I do skiing. I try to stay off of black slopes. I'll do a green or blue slopes. You know, I try not. I have a successful ski trip if I don't fall over. <laughs> yes. My family and I, we like to ride bicycles. Sometimes go to Europe and ride bicycles like down the Rhine or down the Danube. Oh, fun. Uh, we go down because you're generally going downhill the whole day. You ride next to the river. So th- those are things I like to do. Love it. That's awesome. Well, Bill, this has been amazing. Like I feel like I could sit here and talk to you forever. But in the interest of time, we have to close this up. But thank you so much for sitting down and talking about the Broadgate and just about structural engineering in general. This has been awesome. So thank you so much. Sure, I'm glad to do it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today.